0: Beloved congregation of our Lord and King Jesus Christ, this morning when we heard the word of the Lord concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ, we considered the, the very many shortcomings of the Old Testament priesthood. and We saw how by the end of the Old Testament era, because of, because of the experiences of the Of exile and and the other hardships for the people of God, that Israel was desperate, absolutely desperate for the restoration of peace with God. The song that we sang just before the reading of our text, that's hymn 16, it really emphasized the fact that Israel was in a state of exile before the coming of Christ, that even though God's people were back In the land, after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, they still experienced a sort of spiritual exile until the arrival of the coming one. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. In that hymn, we have what is a very dark situation Exile, a form of exile under the shadow of death. It's the blackest night waiting for the good morning. Paradise has been lost and it's yearning to be restored. And in that hymn, we have the long-awaited solution. The thing that God's people are waiting for. Oh, come, thou branch of Jesse's stem, thou who hast David's key. The people are waiting For the return of the king. What an awesome and glorious hope. For a broken people. The king is coming. The king is coming. And when that glorious king arrives. He will have the power. And the authority to restore. Everything that's broken. He will put an end. To the trauma. That the people of God. And and that all creation. Have been experiencing because of. The fall into sin because of their own unfaithfulness. He will heal everyone who is feeling the curse that has settled over all of creation. The curse that is there because of the inescapable plague of sin. And the king will set up his glorious kingdom and all will be well with the world. This is the promise that is held out. This is what the coming of the Messiah means. This afternoon, we're hearing the third part of that theme of the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And in the past installments, we saw the wonderful work of God's prophets and priests in proclaiming and teaching the people that the way of salvation is open. But we saw how imperfect men held these offices. And as esteemed as they were, they could not completely secure the well-being of the people of God. We needed our chief prophet and teacher to come, our only high priest to open the way of salvation and to make us understand the wonder of that way. And he has done this for us. And so this morning, or this afternoon, may our hearts be lifted up, may our eyes be opened to see also the glory of God in his son Jesus Christ who is also our eternal king, whose kingdom has come. Whose rule is wonderful. And we'll hear what the Word of God has said and what it what He continues to say in His Word about His coming in Psalm 72. And so I want to do a quick walkthrough through this Psalm in order to draw our attention to a couple of major themes that are here. And so I invite you to follow along in your Bibles if you like. I want to first take a look at how the psalm begins and ends. In, in verse 1, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The people of God are praying to God to bless the king of Israel. So they're praying firstly that God would bless the earthly kings of the nation, endow him with justice and righteousness. This is the blessing that this man, or these men, these kings, these earthly kings, need from God in order to be able to carry out their office with faithfulness. And then we have this middle section, which is the outworking of that justice and righteousness, This is the expectation that God will bring about those blessings. And then afterward, after that middle section that describes what life in the kingdom of God looks like, the song closes with this marvelous doxology. Praise be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. This is verse 18. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth Be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, a double amen. And so it begins with this prayer, this fervent prayer for God's blessing. And then in the middle, there's this description of what God's blessing looks like. And then we're prepared to give thanks and praise to God in the highest form possible. Why? Because he certainly will bring these things about. So let's be prepared to give him praise for all of this. Now, we also recognize that the superscription of this psalm says that it is sung, it's composed of Solomon, David's son. He's the king whom the Lord had endowed with justice and righteousness. It's under the rule of Solomon that his people enjoyed all of the things that we're going to hear about in, in, to an earthly degree. And this is true. We think of the glory of the kingdom, the impressiveness of Israel during that time—I mentioned it very briefly this morning. The Queen of Sheba came, and, and she was absolutely flabbergasted by Solomon's great wisdom—the wisdom that he had received directly from God Himself. He was equipped to to judge the people with that wisdom. She was enamored by everything that she saw uh, uh, surrounding the the service of the palaces, the service of uh, the priesthood, she, attribute, she attributed all of that to one thing, and that was to the great love that God has for his people. She said that with her own mouth. It is because of the great love of the Lord for his people that I am seeing all of these wonderful things. So this prayer that was prayed for Solomon, who is sort of the first installment of the messianic King, the anointed one of God. These things certainly were brought about by God. But we know from the history of Solomon that that glory didn't last forever. He was led astray by his many foreign wives to the worship of other gods, and the kingdom was split because of his unfaithfulness. We saw that that was one of the warnings that was given in Deuteronomy 17. When you have a king, let him not accumulate for himself many wives. And this is one of the reasons. We know that because of the failures of Solomon and other kings like him, a greater son of David must fulfill this prayer and promise in infinitely greater measures. So with that in mind, we want to have a look at the body of this psalm. The body of the psalm, the the middle section, and there, as I said, we'll see two themes, two themes, two emphases that appear in in four uh, rhythmic sections here. So there are two sections in this psalm that, that focus on the experience of the king's subjects. They focus on what life is like for the people of this kingdom, and two sections that focus on the king himself. And so the first section is uh, the verses 2, 3 and 4. May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So the king will ensure that righteousness and justice Prevail in the kingdom. The people are going to experience this beautiful righteousness among them that is given by God. Oppressors will be crushed. Victims are going to be defended. So that's the first section. That's verses 2, 3, and 4. And then we have the second section, verses 5 through 11. And then we have a switch from a focus on the people to a focus on the king. What is this king like? This is the character of the king's reign. It is everlasting. It's life-giving. It's like rain that waters the fields. It's like life-giving showers on the earth. And this king is honored in every part of the earth. After that, we have the third section, and this is a, a, a turn back, so it's sort of rhythmic. First the people, then the king, and now we're looking at the people again. Verses 12, 13, and 14, we turn again to see more blessings for the people of God. Again, the needy are delivered, the weak receive compassion, and the king rescues everyone who is in trouble. What a life this is. It's a society of of justice. This is what every culture of the world dreams for and wishes for and seeks uh, so strongly to bring about. And then finally, we have the fourth section, verses 15, 16, and 17. Back to our focus on the king. Long live the king. Let everyone praise and bless his name. All nations are blessed by him, and he is blessed, or he is exalted. His name is magnified. So two sections that focus on the well-being of the people, the great blessing for the people of God, who live in such a wonderful kingdom, and two sections that focus on this glorious king, the one who rules. So We first examine the, the two sections that focus on these blessings for the people. What wonderful words of comfort. Words that give great hope for people who are in trouble, for people who are oppressed. Comfort for those who are In a state of need. And what we have to consider very deeply here is that these promises, this this glory, this life, this is one aspect of the gospel. This is one aspect of the gospel. It's an amazing, it's a wonderful hope and expectation. Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, He is the great rescuer, He's the one who solves all of the world's problems. He heals forever those who are sick. He restores the cosmos. He he restores the entire world, all of creation, to a state of goodness. He takes away the awful reproach from us, which is sin, our great sinfulness, and he supplies us with his own righteousness. This is the wonderful message of Jesus Christ for the benefit of the world. Again, that's one aspect of the gospel. Jesus Christ rules with righteousness like no other king does, like no president, no prime minister can do. Jesus does it. What a king who brings that kind of kingdom. And we contrast that with what we read from 2 Kings. That was just a snippet of the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. This was the very end of a long line of unfaithfulness, we have a similar recording in 2 Kings chapter 17. So this was, uh, the, 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 these were the final kings of the kingdom of Judah right before they went into captivity and God judged them for their unfaithfulness. And in 2 Kings 17, we have sort of a parallel to that. And that's uh, the, the, the record of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. And the reason that God sent them off into Assyrian captivity. Wicked king after wicked king led God's people in unfaithfulness, and then finally God pours out his wrath, his awful wrath, on them. He destroys the kingdom of Judah, he burns Jerusalem to the ground, and he uses the Babylonians as the instruments of his judgment. The kings of God's people, they did not lead the people in righteousness. They did not know and love the law of God. We read in Deuteronomy 17 about how the kings were to write their own copy of the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the law of God. So they had to get a copy from the Levites And they had to take a a quill and ink and some parchment and they had to sit down and they had to write, word for word, an entire copy of all of that for themselves. And they had to use it. They had to write it on their hearts. These kings didn't do that. These kings did not marvel at the goodness of God in His Word. They didn't make sure that they knew His will. They didn't ensure that the people followed God's will. If they did, then that would have led to a kingdom that certainly enjoyed the blessings of God, but they rejected it. Instead of righteousness and justice that is so impressive and wonderful to see, the kind of kingdom that would have been such a shining jewel for all of the nations around them to take notice of, instead of that, they, they trampled on the poor, they trampled on the needy, they polluted the worship of God, and God finally spat them out. In contrast to those kings who failed so terribly, kings who brought this dark state of exile, who, because of their own moral failures, because of their godless character, brought the people to a state where they cried out for help. Here in this psalm, we have the glorious character of our king. Jesus Christ. The one that God's people were waiting for. The one who would be born and deliver them from this exile. So the great message of the gospel is that Jesus rules perfectly. The great message of the gospel is that everything that's wrong with the world will be made right. That his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's a perfect kingdom. That we have a future where every evil is wiped away. Where there is no unrighteousness. Only perfect justice. That Jesus completely restores the world. We live now and we will live forever In a Psalm 72 kingdom, Jesus rules for the benefit of the world. That's one aspect, as I said, of the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ for the world. The one who heals and restores the world. But it's bigger than that. The story of the Bible is bigger than that. It's not just what we get from him. It's not just the benefits That we receive from God. But the great message of the gospel is the revealing of the most beautiful and loving and compassionate and good king. That's a greater message of the gospel. The gospel is the shining brightness of the Son of God. Long live the king and may we bless his name forever. And this is the most wonderful thing about this. God has bound those two aspects together. On the one hand, Jesus Christ for the world. And on the other hand, all the world for him, for his glory. So that the greatest glory and honor of God is exactly the the how and the why Christ is exalted. He is exalted because of what the whole story of the Bible is moving toward. This this glorious God-made man, that's God incarnate, he is saving his people from certain destruction. And listen to this. He is bringing them into an unimaginable, glorious state of unity with himself. Christ for the world and the world for Christ. And it all comes together in this beautiful unity between Christ and his church. We're not merely the most blessed and prosperous subjects of the greatest king that the world can ever know. But even more than that, we are made one with him. How incredible is that? We're somehow made one with this glorious king. Jesus' prayer in John 17 was that the unity that we get to have with him The oneness that we have with Jesus Christ who is God incarnate. That is like the unity that the Son enjoys with the Father. That idea should be just mind-boggling to us. This is the purpose of everything. This This is the great story of the Bible. God is the creator and the ruler of the earth. He created us to obey him and serve him. And worship Him because yes, He is God and He is worthy of this. But obedience means conforming to Him. Conforming to Him who is holy and good and having this beautiful harmony with God. It means fully enjoying. So not just submitting to God, but enjoying His goodness and His most intimate presence forever and ever. That's what his rule looks like. We are brought intimately near to him so that body and soul, we are just captivated by his awe-inspiring majesty. We are utterly stunned by the kind of love that he would show us. He demonstrates his love in the way that he saves us and brings us to himself. And he gives us this unspeakable gift of unity with him. This is his great glory. That's that's the big revealing of the glory of God. That he has taken people who, who shouldn't have anything to do with him and brings us into perfect unity with himself. That's the gospel. That is his eternal praise. The church is rescued and restored And it's brought to this state of blessedness. This is the exaltation and the magnification, like the the enlargening of of the name of God. This has always been the great purpose of God. The great revealing of the glory of God through his son. We we can read that in Ephesians chapter 1. There's this revealing of God. The eternal purposes of God that he purposed in Christ before the foundations of the world. And at the end there, so, so the whole purpose of this is the glory of, of the Son of God. And the conclusion of that, verses 20 through 22, He raised Christ from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, Above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, listen to this, for the church. So he's exalting his son, but it's not just for that. He's exalting his son for the church, which is his body The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. God's purpose. How wonderful is that? God's purpose, the great goal of all of this, is that Jesus Christ would be lifted up higher than anything else, and then that He and His bride, the church, are given to each other in love, in unity. What a story. There's no story like it. That's what it means to live in the Psalm 72 kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus Christ has already ushered in, the kingdom that is still coming, that is still being established. God is still busy putting things under the feet of Christ. And when it is done completely, what a kingdom that will be. Long may he live. Long live the king. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, because he alone is the one who can do such marvelous deeds. No one else could conceive of such a thing. Praise be to his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen.